All right, to begin, we are going to begin with our young ones. Uh, young ones, kids, let me have your attention because what we're about to do is very serious, and we want you to know what is going on uh, in this passage that we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to give you a heads up uh, what the message is going to be about today from our passage. Y'all, kids, everyone knows, everybody knows milk and cookies just go together. And everybody knows peanut butter and jelly just makes sense. uh, There's just these awesome combos. There are also some weird food combos that you might not think go together. Anybody have a weird food combo that they just love? Anything come to mind like, this is weird, but I like this and this? Anything? Anything? Fries and a milkshake. You would think those don't go together, but the sweet and salty, oh yes, they so go together. Peyton, you got one? (laughs) He was describing his own method of pouring milk in cereal, but yes, even that one is like, I'm going to take some stuff made out of like brand and flour and put milk in it, this crunchy sweetness, and then it kind of comes all together like, yeah, milk and cereal, that's a good one. Any, any other ones? Junior mints and popcorn. Thank you. Yes. You got the, the creaminess and the crunch going together there. Sweet and salty. Again, some mint. It's awesome. How about this one? Who has tried this? Peanut butter on your cheeseburger. Ooh, ooh, except not, except awesome. It's amazing. Peanut butter on your burger, especially if the peanut butter is melted, it actually makes your burger juicier. You should try it before you knock it. How about this one? Cream cheese and flaming hot Cheetos. Yes, yes, true, fact. Cold, smooth, cream cheese, crunchy, spicy chips. Yes. How about this one? Who's done bananas on pizza? No, false, yum. It's awesome. Bananas on pizza. How about this one? Oreos and Doritos. Yes, they go to, yeah, thumbs up from Paul. Thank you. Yes, they go, okay. There are all these weird, like, whoo, that doesn't mix. Yes, it does. But then there are things that actually don't mix that you might not think, oh, no, those go together. Did you know that if you drink milk and you drink orange juice together at like your breakfast, I'm sorry, but the orange juice and the acid in the orange juice can react with the milk and actually make the milk thicker in your tummy and, and it makes it uh, take longer to, for your tummy to digest the milk, and you can get a uh, tummy ache. Milk and orange juice. Sorry, parents, if that just totally blew up like your, your breakfast for your kids. Here's another one. Doesn't go together. You think these go together. Beans and cheese. And that's like blasphemy in Texas. Uh, beans and cheese actually don't go together. Everyone thinks beans is the magical fruit. Not true. Beans by themselves, totally fine. Beans and cheese. That is what gives you the gas. <laughs> Baden, comment. Go, another favorite combo. Cheese and crackers. That's another great one. You would think just plain crackers and, and some cheese. No, Yes, they go together wonderfully. Throw in some fruit, even better. So, here's the so what. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 and chapter 7, where we're going to be today, He tells us that there are things that do not mix with Jesus. There are things that don't mix with Jesus in the church, and that is false teachings about Jesus. 
So Paul's going to say, listen, teaching, teaching lies about Jesus and telling people things like Jesus was not the Son of God. Or you might hear things like, you know what, you actually don't need the death of Christ. You don't need the death of Jesus to save you from your sins. Or to, say, to tell people that God will give you a good life, an easy life, if you're a good person. Those are lies, and they have no part with Jesus. They have no part with his gospel. They have no place in the church. And then Paul is going to tell us about a weird combo that actually does work. Paul's going to tell us that Jesus and suffering, they may seem like a weird combo, but they actually go together. They, they seem like they don't mix, but they totally mix. Because Christians, kids, young ones, Christians, people in the church, we will suffer in this life. We know, we know we're going to suffer in this life, but Jesus is with us in our suffering. Just because you go through hard things in your life, that does not mean God does not love you. That does not mean God is not with you. And you can know that for sure. You can believe that, that even if you are suffering, God is with you. Because Jesus went through ultimate suffering. And he came to do that with us, and not just with us. He went through ultimate suffering for us, so that you actually don't go through ultimate suffering. So that at the end of all things, you go to paradise, you go to heaven with Jesus forever and ever and ever. That's the gospel. And that's the truth that we proclaim to each other every Sunday. It's this weird thing. Ah, Jesus and suffering, yes, they go together. And it gets us all the way to heaven. We're in our summer series in 2 Corinthians. This is the letter that the Apostle Paul writes after 1 Corinthians. Same church that he's writing to, but these are such different letters. If you know 1 Corinthians, he just, he, he deals with, Paul deals with a series of problems that the church is going through, one right after the other. In 2 Corinthians, it's, just, it's different. He's dealing with one problem, and it's super personal. Because the one problem is... The church doesn't like Paul anymore because they don't like his message. Here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to go through the very beginning of chapter 7. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. 
I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jesus ends His famous Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 7 with with a warning. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. One of the last things that Paul tells uh, the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and this is in Acts 20, this is before he's, he's basically locked up for the rest of his life. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The bad news is the Corinthians have allowed wolves into the church. And these wolves, they're not just members of the church. Because even the apostles let people professing the faith into the church who turned out to be con artists, who turned out to be wolves. Because, because no one can see into the heart except God. Okay? But the Corinthians have let these wolves assume leadership in the church in Corinth. And now these false teachers are calling Paul a wolf. Right before our passage, this is right before what we read in, in chapter 6, verse 8, they say that Paul is an, uh, he's an imposter, and he's got a false message. Their message is what we could just briefly call it the prosperity gospel. Their message is that if you believe in God and you're a good person and you do good, you will see God's blessings in your life right now. This life will go well for you because if you're faithful, if you're obedient, God will bless you in this life with with health. You can expect wealth. You can expect success. Just look at us. I mean, they claim to be super apostles. Paul uses that language later in the letter to describe these guys. And they go on to say, now Paul is a wolf because Paul's message is believe in Jesus and then life is hard and then you die. And Paul's life is a mess. Look at him. This is what they're saying. The guy, this guy is always in danger. He is always suffering. He is always causing trouble everywhere this guy goes. He is not living a victorious Christian life. He is not flourishing. Outside, you know, there's like, look, out on the outside, his life is in shambles. And he constantly admits that his life on the inside is a total train wreck. All of the evidence is that God is not with Paul, so he is not to be trusted. So do not listen to him. He is a false apostle, and he does not really love you. And that, that, that's the accusation that Paul addresses right here at the beginning of our passage when he says, we have spoken freely to you. Corinthians, our heart is wide open. The problem is not that Paul has stopped loving them. The problem is that the church in Corinth has stopped loving Paul. And then he calls them, then Paul calls them children. And, and it's not insultingly, like you're a child. No, it, he says they are in his in return, I speak as to children. My children, widen your hearts also. Because Paul loves the Christians. No, uh, he said, and they look at him and say, listen. I can't help but love you. Like, you may hate me, but no matter what, I will never stop loving you. And I will never shut you out. Please don't shut me out. 
This is what Paul is saying and what he expects and what he's hoping for, what he's asking of them, what he is pleading with them is to open their hearts to him, to widen their hearts to Paul. Now, to open their hearts wide to Paul would mean to close their hearts to these false teachers. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Some of you all know that, that, that phrase. Uh, it may sound familiar. Usually that verse, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it's referenced in the church to warn a Christian not to marry an unbeliever, a non-Christian. Okay, but now that you have read this verse in context, don't we all see that's actually not what Paul is talking about at all? It doesn't have anything to do with what Paul is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 7, this is in that first letter, chapter 7, Paul has already said that the Corinthians, to the Corinthians, listen, if you are married to an unbeliever, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife, that in and of itself is not a reason to divorce your spouse. Like your unbelieving spouse, they may decide to divorce you, but you cannot initiate a divorce simply because your spouse does not share your faith. The hope is one day that they would actually come to share your faith. Regardless, that in and of itself is not a reason for divorce. That's not what Paul is talking about here. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul, and it's not because Paul is commanding. He is, there is a call to action here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, others have used this verse to say that you're not supposed to be closely associated with unbelievers. You shouldn't have deep relationships or close friendships with unbelievers. But again, in his last letter in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says you can and you should associate with unbelievers. You should have friendships with the sexually immoral of this world. Okay, then he warns them, then he keeps going and he warns them, but hey, watch out for those in the church who profess faith in Christ, but they act just like unbelievers. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is he's not making a general statement about how Christians should or should not relate to unbelievers. He is talking about how they should relate to the false teachers. These wolves in leadership who have deceived the church with their prosperity gospel. When Paul says, open your hearts to us and don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he means you need to kick these false teachers out of the church. This is church discipline's last resort. It's excommunication. And yes, that sounds intolerant. It sounds unloving. But you follow Paul's reasoning here, and you come to the opposite conclusion. The phrase unequally yoked, it actually comes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 22. You shall not plow the ox and the donkey together. Practically, we don't have to be farmers to get this. Practically, those two animals would take different steps. Okay, so the plowing would be unequal. Practically, that would not work. And morally, the two animals would fight and end up killing each other. Okay, morally, that is wrong and cruel. Paul's point is that you cannot follow Jesus with false teachers leading the way, teaching a false gospel. It will not work, and it is wrong and cruel to ask a series of questions 
They're all rhetorical, as in you're supposed to say no to all of them. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's just Belial is another name for the devil. As in, would Jesus ever team up with the devil to accomplish his purposes of the gospel? Never. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And this is the point. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of the living God. And then he throws out, he asks these rhetorical questions, and then he, and then he throws out these uh, quotes from the Old Testament, and they seem like they're, ooh, they're all, they are from all over the place in the Old Testament. But Paul, Paul's point here is he's quoting these, these passages from different stages uh, in the history of the temple, the history of the temple in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. And what he's making is he's making the point from all these different stages of this is what the temple always was. This is, the, this is what the point of the temple has always been. The temple was the house of God, okay? But the physical temple was always designed to be a symbol of the people house, which is the true residence of God. That is, in the Old Testament, God dwelled in the temple as a symbol of the reality that he really dwells in the midst of his people. So yes, we want to say this, yes, God dwells individually inside each Christian. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of each one of you. Okay, and here's the point of what he's saying right here, and God dwells corporately in his people. As in, we, y'all, look around. We hear, we are the temple. When the church gathers, God is with us. So when the church gathers, we are to guard the holiness of his sanctuary. And th- that's not the sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. We're the sanctuary. The holiness that we're supposed to be guarding is each other. So we do not profane this gathering with lies. Holiness is not, usually we think of holiness, it is not just a personal, individual concern. You're not just worried about your own personal holiness. You're not just worried about your kids, your, your, your spouses, maybe your best friends, individual holiness. It's not just an individual concern. You're not, you are supposed to be concerned with the holiness of your church family, too. We are supposed to be concerned with the corporate holiness of our gathering. So we think, like, first stuff that comes to mind when you think of the Old Testament temple, you're like, man, that was serious stuff. Like, the Old Testament temple, that, that was a really, really serious thing. They took it really, really seriously. That thing was just a symbol. A symbol of us gathered here. We are the real temple. This, what we are doing right here, right now, y'all, this is so much more serious than the Old Testament temple. We are the temple. How much more does God care about guarding this temple? How much more, therefore, should we care about guarding this temple? So Paul says, you are allowing unbelievers to teach false doctrine, a false gospel in the church. Stop them. Get them out. 
Do not be unequally yoked. Verse 17, go out from them. Separate from them. Chapter 7, verse 1, cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. And it is not a good idea to assume, for us to sit here, hear this, and assume, well, we'll never be duped by a counterfeit gospel because counterfeit is as original as possible. So it can be passed off as the real thing. And y'all, this church, the Corinthian church, they learned the after these false teachers come in preaching a different message. And yeah, they talk about Jesus and believing in him, but their message is not Paul's message. And the Corinthian church got duped. So, how do you know? You know you got the real thing and not the counterfeit. How do we know? How do you know you've got the real good news? To answer that question of how do you know, people go a couple ways. One way people go. Some people will claim, how do I know what's true and good? Tradition. What my family says. What my, what my people say. What my religion says. Whatever my church says. That, that's what's true. That's the real good news. That can really easily get translated into any church. The good news is Jesus and our traditions. And depending on where you're from, depending on uh, you know, where you're coming from, uh, that, that there's some kind of list of what you must do and what you must not do. As in, uh, you're going to hear, hear some say no drinking, hear others say no smoking, hear others say no tattoos, hear others say no sex, hear others say no watching certain things online. So there's this, here's what you must not do, and here's what you must do. Uh, you got to vote this way, you got to dress this way, you got to date this way, you got to talk this way. I mean, we, the list goes on and on of what you should not do, what you should do. You can take it all. You've got Jesus and you've got your traditions. You've got your right way of living. And if you believe and if you do your best to live and do these things, then God will accept you and then he will bless you. Now, hear me say this. Uh, traditions are not inherently true. That is not what we are saying. Uh, you, and we're all saying you cannot escape traditions. You've got traditions. You actually just want to be super open and super aware of what your tradition is, even in the church. We have a Christian tradition that we belong to, yes, but human tradition is not the ultimate authority that decides what is good and true. Another way people will go is they will claim that question, how do I know what's good and true? My conscience is my God, that voice in my head. I know I've, I've used this before, but this is just, I think, the best way I can describe it. What does Jiminy Cricket tell Pinocchio? Always let your conscience be your guide. And he's saying that to a kid who just gained consciousness. That's what the Blue Fairy tells Pin Pinocchio two minutes after she magically brings him to life. Blue Fairy says, you must learn to choose between right. The, the whole thing is so contradictory. It doesn't make sense. You must learn to choose between right and wrong. And Pinocchio looks at her with that blank expression, right, right and wrong, but how will I know? And then she laughs. <laughs> your conscience will be your guide. One, you've got to learn to choose right and wrong, and then your conscience will be just, Okay. Now, I don't know if Pinocchio was like Adam in the garden before the fall, uh, created with a conscience knowing right and wrong because he's made in the image of God. I don't know if that's the line that Disney is on, whatever. I don't care. That's terrible advice for you and me. Terrible advice. Love Disney. Yeah, sure. That is how serial killers walk around all day. That kind of believing gets into the church so easily. 
It's so, it's everywhere in the world right now. You throw out black and white absolute stuff. Let's accept everyone for who they are. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is that you're a good person. And the only real sin is to ever criticize someone's choices for how they choose to live their life. That too is a message of salvation, even if you never use the word salvation. Because it, that, that idea is we need to be saved from the idea of sin. We need to be saved from the idea of salvation. We need to be redeemed from the idea of redemption. The only sin is to say that there's sin. And there's all, there's all kinds of forms of this good news. And then really quickly it turns into, oh yeah, if you don't tow our, our line, then you are wrong in sin. They wouldn't use the word sin. Whichever way you go, whether you are religious or you are irreligious, whether you use the word salvation or, or you talk about like the measurement of your worth or how to justify yourself as good, every human heart seeks to achieve for yourself salvation as you define it. There's one New Testament commentator that that every human heart seeks to achieve for yourself salvation as you define it. Everybody does that. Everybody. The good news of tradition, the good news of the postmodern self, neither is good news. They are both incredibly exclusive and intolerant. They're both counterfeit gospels. They're not good news. They're bad news. They're terrible news for everyone, for anyone. Because both the traditional approach and the progressive approach, they exclude bad people. And speaking for myself, both of those approaches are the worst, and they don't do me any good because I'm not a good person. I'm the worst. I've got regrets. I think things. I say things. I do things I don't want anybody to know about. And when I hear what both the traditional and the progressive uh, sides are saying, live, and they both add up to this, live a good life and you'll get what you deserve. I am not comforted by that. And I am definitely not saved by it. No one is. The message of the gospel is we are weak and broken. Everyone in the church is weak and broken, and that includes its leadership. We are not pulled together. We are not people who, hey, we've pulled it together. And we do not worship a Savior who had it all pulled together. We are saved by admitting that we are weak. And our message is we believe in a Savior who was weak and devastated for us. We worship and proclaim to you a Savior who did not win, but lost everything on the cross for us. Yes, we've got the truth. We've got the truth. And we believe the truth. And we will not compromise the truth. We won't shrink from the truth. This gospel of grace, it is an absolute truth claim. And it is exclusive. But it is not oppressive. The gospel of grace is for every sinner. It is for anyone who wants it. So it's also the most inclusive message there is. You just have to admit you're not superior like us. You just have to admit that you're weak like us. God's leaders, they know that they are shepherding a people who are constantly trying to achieve their own salvation. 
And that includes you. (laughs) Religious people in the church, irreligious people in the church. And when you come in with your doubts, and when you come in with your superiority, God's leaders are, are supposed to point you back to Jesus with grace. That is what Paul is doing here. And the, lead, the kind of leadership we're looking for in the church, and not, not just this church, we are just one part of the church, uh, the, the, the greater, not just our denomination, but the church across the world, the leadership in the church that we were looking for, uh, another pastor put it like this, we're not looking for people with the greatest influence. We're looking for servants. We're, we're not looking, we're looking for people with the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. We're looking for people with character who are kind, and who are gentle with other people. We're not, looking, we're not looking for people with the least amount of problems in their life. We're looking for people who endure in suffering. People who have genuine faith. We're not looking for people who rely on their own works. We're looking for people who rely on Jesus and the power of the gospel. Those, the other describes Paul and the apostles. And then the shepherds and all the leaders, men and women who come after them, they're closer and closer to Jesus. Lead each other to Jesus. This is, this is maybe Paul at his most emotional moment in all of Scripture. Like this is personal to Paul, but this is not just about, this is not just about Paul. Like what's really at stake is not the Corinthians' relationship to Paul. It is their relationship to Jesus. They don't like Paul because they don't like his gospel. But if they reject Paul in his gospel, then they are rejecting Jesus in his salvation because that is Paul's gospel. And when we hear Paul's appeals to the Corinthians to open their hearts to this ministry and to this love, they are supposed to look past Paul and they're supposed to look to Jesus. The Corinthians and we are supposed to be drawn past Paul here to our Lord and our Savior, who, no matter what he, no matter how he was treated by those who were supposed to love him but hated him, he endured suffering. He endured shame. He endured the wrath of the cross to save you and to save me. Look to Jesus who opened wide his heart to us. Look to Jesus whose heart is open wide to you right now. Look to Jesus whose heart is open wide to you forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the good news of this gospel, the good news of the gospel that declares what we, what we want to kick back against, what we want to say no to uh, every day, that proclaims that we're weak. And Father, we, we, we have such a hard time admitting that we are weak. But the good news is that you have come in weakness to save us. And Lord, help us to look to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in our weakness. To not, to not run away from it, to not hide from it, to not, to not live in shame uh, with our weakness, but to freely admit it, to freely admit it here, to come here with our doubts, to come here with all of our superiority and, and to look to one another and to lead each other again and again and again and again and again and again to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Father, we, we, we need your grace and we need it today and we're gonna need it again tomorrow. We're gonna need it next week and the week after. We're gonna need it for the rest of our lives because we're weak, because we have suffering ahead of us. Father, bless us with your grace to endure. Bless us with your grace to hold on to one another here 
to keep going, knowing that, that we are led by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the leaders in this church, the leaders in your church across the world. We pray for everyone here because we are all called to lead each other, to point each other to our Savior and to our only hope of grace. Father, bless us to that end. Bless us until you come back or you call us home. We pray in Christ's name, amen.